And we saw that God speaks to His people. We saw that God is sovereign over the events of history. And although I look back at my notes, and it probably would have been more helpful to find that as God's providence over history um, rather than His sovereign right in history, we saw that God is in control. We also saw that God is creating a holy people for Himself. And these themes, although taken from our text in Ezra 1, will continue throughout Ezra. But this morning, I want us to start actually somewhere different. And it, it's looking at this text, but it's also looking at this text within all of Scripture. And every time I preach on Lord's Day, I ask myself two questions. The first question, as I'm preparing my sermon, is the easy question. What should I say? As I look at the text, as I study, as I read, there's lots of things that I can say about a text, about an illustration, about the context. But the second question I ask myself every Lord's Day is what must I say? Because what can I say and what I must say are two different things. If I was, came up here to say what I could every week, we'd be here for a really long time. So you guys are all thankful that I cut down when I, when I choose what must I say. It's what I believe the Spirit is leading me to tell His people in the church. So last week, I gave a short historical context. That was something that I could say and I felt that I must say for us to have an understanding. The southern kingdom of Judah and the territory of Benjamin were exiled. It was not all of Israel that was exiled, because Israel had split into two, and they were taken away. But So something this morning that I feel that I must say is, if you have your investigatory lens, magnifying glass out, you will notice some irregularities in the scriptures. You will notice problems with the numbers. And... As every commentator says, Ezra 2 is actually one of the hardest passages in all of Scripture to translate because it's a list of names and numbers and places that we're not really sure where they are exactly. And if you have your investigatory magnifying glass out, if you look back at Ezra 1, you will notice that there's a list of numbers given. And it says that those numbers add up to 5,400 when they actually only added up to 2,499. Has the text made a mistake? In our chapter this morning, we find this almost exact text in Nehemiah 7. Here in Ezra 2, we are given 11 names of the heads of the people of Israel. In Nehemiah 7, we are given 12 names. Is there an error in the text? As we get to verse 64, we find out that the numbers of people that assembled together were 42,360. The exact same number given in Nehemiah 7, although if you add up all the numbers, that's not the right number. So we must ask ourselves the question, is the Bible wrong? Are there errors in this text? And I don't mean to just slough off this problem, but the doctrine of inerrancy holds that the Scriptures are inerrant 
they are without error in the original autographs, in the original documents that were written by the people whom the Holy Spirit came upon and guided them as they wrote. How many of you have memorabilia, something signed by somebody, whether it's a famous person, a sports athlete, a celebrity, maybe even the president? But you can also buy things that have someone's autograph that isn't the original autograph. So when we say that the original autographs, the ones specifically written, guided by the hand of God, those are without error. But we must also recognize that the copyists, the scribes who took those, because, you know, they didn't have a printer to just copy a scripture sheet every morning. To copy something, they had to look at it and copy it by hand. We actually don't believe that God ordainly was in the activity of every single scribe. That there could have been errors. That there could be problems in the translation of numbers and names. And just as these names are hard to pronounce, they're also hard to translate. But in the original text, our God sovereignly ordained that it is without error. This is what we believe as historic evangelicals. This is what we believe in a Reformed Presbyterian church. And when we read through Ezra 2, we must be able to answer these questions. I don't want our children to go to college. Will They will hear the Bible is wrong and it contains errors. Because it was in college when I first heard that growing up in the church. This is the safe place. This is where we need to talk about it. There are discrepancies. But the Bible is without error. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. Because this is a story about God's faithfulness. And now, whether this number of 42,360 is supposed to represent the numbers totaled up, or it just gives us the, a round number of, this is how many people came. There were people that weren't named. If you look back at chapter 1, 5,400 vessels. It doesn't, the Bible is not saying that this number of given of all the vessels was everything that was given, but it gives us an example of what was given. And as we look at Ezra 2 today, we see 11 names, and I think it is a simple scribal error. I think the original is found in Nehemiah 7. But we must say that even with these errors, nothing that our faith stands upon is wrong in the Bible. Where the Bible speaks with authority, where the Bible gives an expression of what we must believe concerning God the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, the Bible is without error. Do you know one of the most common problems with the New Testament Scriptures? Does the come before or after Christ? But people will say, well, the Bible has errors because it misrepresents the original text. I want you to know that this is a safe Bible to read. We need it in our church 
If this is the Bible we carry around with us, if this is the Bible we read, we should not shy away from these issues. God has given this to the church to reprove us, to rebuke us, to exhort us. Nothing in it that has errors messes with the doctrine, the essential doctrine of Jesus Christ, dead and risen again. It is trustworthy. With that said, let us go to the Lord in prayer as we look at Ezra 2. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, convict us of the trustworthiness of your scriptures. And as your people, we do have to take the leap of faith of those who came before us translating, copying. May we be a people who are secure in our trust that as the scriptures reveal you, you are faithful. Lord, there's nothing that I can say that can convince anybody of these truths. It is your spirit that is at work inside of us that moves us to believe. Lord, we ask for your spirit to work his healing power in John Sartell. Lord, please give him strength. Lord, we pray for Zach and Jill Street. May they recover from this virus. We pray for Mike Bodiford. Lord, heal him. Lord, we pray for Justin and Molly Wilburn as she prepares to deliver this baby. Protect her. Give her strength. Lord, we pray for the professors as they do your work in Asia. We thank you for continuing to open up doors that you used a global pandemic to give them more pathways into preaching the gospel. Lord, we pray for Joe Johnson, the minister at RUF at Mississippi State. Lord, may he lead those students. May he point those students to Christ, their only hope of salvation. And Lord, we now pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 70 verses of names. So your next question for me, after, is this text reliable? You might ask, how are all scriptures profitable for us? Isn't Ezra 2 just one of those chapters that we can just skim over and just hop over because it's a list of names and numbers and donkeys and horses and singers and gatekeepers? What, does, what do these 70 verses have to do for God's people? 
if you believe in the testimony of the Scriptures, that it reveals to God's people, both past and present, what this passage will reveal to us. God is faithful. That's what this text is about. In chapter 1, God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus that his word might be fulfilled, proclaimed by the prophet Jeremiah. And he allowed the people of God to return to Israel. And then we saw in Ezra 1.5, in the heads of the fathers of the households, God's spirit stirred up their spirits that they might go and build the temple of God. God is undoing what has been done to his people. He is divinely reversing this narrative. They were cast out for their sins. They received due justice for their unrepentance. Yet God in his divine mercy did not leave them in their sins. He is rescuing them. He is redeeming his people. That is what these 70 verses are about. God keeps His covenant promises. He redeems a community for Himself so that each member might embrace the covenant from their hearts and therefore participate in God's recreating the world for the world's benefit. This is what God's people, both past and present, are called to do. To embrace their covenant obligation and to be a blessing unto the nations. And as we look at these names, I want us to see two things. That God is preparing a people to worship, and God is preparing a people to work. God is preparing a people to worship. Goat. An acronym meaning the greatest of all time. And it's usually associated with sports, but I don't want to do another sports analogy. So I want you to take GOAT, the greatest of all time, and apply it to your hobby or to your work. If you're a botanist, who's the GOAT? Who's the greatest botanist of all time? Or pianist? Or master smoker? And I'm talking about a grill smoker. And when Bill's here at second service, I'll ask him who the goat is of barefoot skiing. Who do you look up to in your trade? My guess is it's someone who does very well at that trade. If I could make a dream team of preachers, you know, of course, Jesus makes, makes the top of the list. Paul admitted in the scriptures that he isn't the goat, that he isn't a very good preacher. Then we have people like Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, and one of the greatest preachers I've ever heard in person, Thurman Williams, a pastor in St. Louis. Who would be your dream team on whatever hobby or whatever trade that you do? How would you build your team? My guess is that you would take this goat, the greatest of all time, and build a team around them. In Ezra 1, God revealed his providential plan to redeem his people. And in Ezra 2, God reveals his dream team. We see this, these names in verse 2. Zerubbabel, 
Jeshua, Nehemiah, not the Nehemiah of the book of Nehemiah, Sechariah, Reliah, Mordecai, not the Mordecai of Esther, Bilshan, Misphar, Bigva, Rehum, and Benah. These are the heads of the households of the people of Israel. These, as we will see in Nehemiah 7, these are the 12 tribes of Israel being brought back into the land. This is God's team. God looked at his people in exile who didn't listen to him, who mocked him and killed his prophets, who no longer wanted to be a part of his covenant promises. They wanted to be like the other countries with the other kings, with the other gods. And these are the people that God picked. Surely there's somebody better looking. Surely there's people that work harder or more honest or smarter. Or heaven forbid, they just complain less. These people have baggage. And it is these people that God chose to redeem. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, who right after receiving God's covenant promises, gave his wife over twice to save his own skin. David, as I preached about 2 Samuel 7, received God's covenant promise. What comes right after 2 Samuel 7? He started to watch a woman who wasn't his wife bathe. A common refrain in the Old Testament said over 42 times, God's people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Jeremiah proclaimed to the people that were in exile, For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in the sight of the Lord. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. Surely there's someone better for God to fulfill his covenant promises, to fulfill his divine plan of redeeming the world. Yet this is who God has chosen, and he doesn't sell them out. He promised to bring back a remnant that he had driven off and to bring them back into the fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply is what Jeremiah says in 23.3. A chosen people. To do what? Be fruitful and multiply. What does that sound like? That's what Adam was told to do in the garden. To fill human calling to flourish, and to multiply. This people that God has redeemed, is redeeming, have the purpose of being image bearers in God's creation to fulfill their mandate given in the garden, to embrace the covenant in their hearts and participate in God's redemptive purposes for the blessings of the world. These are the ones that he has chosen. These names, these are the people God has chosen. They constitute the new Israel, 
This is the list. The ones that God stirred up in their hearts to go back into the promised land. This is the list that God has called to worship Him. The ones who God revealed His holiness and His majesty because not all of the people that were in Babylon came back. It was only those who the Spirit stirred in their hearts. This is what you and I need to hear this morning. Because our sin is the same as Israel's sin. It separates us from God. It is evil, unholy. It is deadly. It is inhumane. It desecrates humanity. It destroys, even though it promises life. It shatters families. It divides churches. It tears down societies and communities, even government and kingdoms. And sin must always be dealt with. Israel did not get a pat on the head and say, you know, it's okay. We can just overlook it. They suffered the consequences and they were exiled out of the promised land. But do you remember the most important passage in the Old Testament? It's one that I quote often. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. Our sin has been dealt with. On the cross, when all of our sin was poured upon Christ. We aren't a dream team, but we are the ones that God has called to fulfill his covenant purposes for the world that he created. Moses writes to the people just after they came out of Israel as they're preparing to go into the promised land in Deuteronomy 7. It was not because you were more in number than the other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out of, with a mighty hand and redeemed you of the house of slavery for the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. God is faithful to his covenant promises. I will say it every week. I will not get tired of saying it. God is faithful to his people. God is merciful and gracious with his people. He is bringing them out of a place of death and alienation back into new life in the land that he had promised their forefathers. He's not given up on them. He's redeeming them. And God is calling them to come and to worship him. You are God's people if you follow him by faith. If you follow Christ, you have been removed. You are no longer sons of disobedience, following the prince of the air, following the way of the world. You are united to Christ. Even though you were dead, 
as the people were dead in Babylon, you are now made alive together with Christ. You are the people that God has chosen to build his kingdom. The Spirit has moved in you. He has called you by His Word. And once you have repented of your sin, because you know your sin, you know that you cannot do enough. You know that your sin has been dealt with on the cross. God has chosen you, as Paul says in Romans 11, you are the remnant by grace. And now our only response is to worship God. To believe the gospel. That Jesus did not come for the healthy. He came for the sick. For sinners like you and me. And if you do not know your sin, if you have not confessed your sin and the need of a Savior, I pray that the Spirit will work and stir in your heart as He did in Ezra 1 for the people of Ezra 2. That the Spirit reveals the grace of God for you. That your sins deserve damnation. But because of the work of Christ, you are free. This is how God builds His kingdom. Through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through the work of His people. God is creating a people prepared to worship. And God is creating a people prepared to work. So as we look at this list of names, there's a few names that we must look at rather than, you know, I could go through all of them if you wanted me to, but my guess is that you don't want me to go through all the names. But we need to see some major components of this name. So the first name on the list is Zerubbabel. As I alluded to, I preached in 2 Samuel 7 just a few weeks ago. And that text is the passage about God's covenant to David. And he made a promise to David that his son will have a kingdom that will last forever. And we saw that a lot of the promises that were given to David were fulfilled in his son Solomon. But yet not all of the promises were fulfilled. So we must ask how the people in exile received those covenant promises. If I continue to proclaim God is faithful to his promise, how can both of these things be true? He promised his kingdom will last forever, but now there's no longer a kingdom. So this first name, Zerubbabel, which means seed of Babylon, and if you have that same investigatory magnifying glass, as I said earlier, if you read the book of Haggai and Zechariah, prophets of this time, they call Zerubbabel the governor. And in First Chronicles you see that the kings that were exiled, that Zerubbabel is the son of Jehoiakim, who's in the line of David. He's the grandson. So even though people are exiled into Babylon, God kept hold of David's seed and made sure that the seed returned so that his covenant promises might be fulfilled. Zerubbabel's name is found twice in the New Testament. Matthew and Luke, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. God is faithful to his covenant promises to David. The king will come through Zerubbabel. 
The second name on this list is Joshua, which is sometimes spelled Joshua. And we find out also in Haggai and Zechariah that he is the high priest. And just as God has called his people out of Exodus and set up the priesthood, someone who would intercede for Israel's sins and go into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence so that they might worship him, we have Jeshua, who is the high priest. So God is providing the people with everything they need to what? To return to the land and worship and to work. And then you have these lists of names. And every time you say a name, you say, God is faithful. Every time in these 70 verses, we hear the words, God is faithful to his covenant promises. Then we get to verse 36 through 38, and we see he's providing priests. And then in verse 40, he's providing Levites who help the priests in the, in the temple. And then you have temple servants and the sons of Solomon servants. They helped the Levites who helped the priests because this is a people made to worship. And God is providing everything that they need. God is preparing them to worship him in the land. And then we get to verse 68. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its side. There is work to be done. God has made his team, but now his team must do something. God gave them everything they needed to build the temple. He gave them the money. He gave them the people. He gave them the line of David. He gave, him, gave them the priesthood. In the same way, he has provided us with everything we need to build the new temple. Because Jesus is both our king and our priest. And he leads us. He intercedes for us. He shows us God's mercy and graciousness. But as I always tell the youth group, we are not only saved from our sins. Yes, we are saved from something, but we are also saved to something. We are saved from our sins, but we are saved to do the work of God. And Jesus summarizes it very well in Matthew. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. To love your neighbor as yourself. To be poor in spirit. To mourn with those who mourn. To be meek. To hunger and thirst for righteousness. To be merciful. To be pure in heart. To be peacemakers. To be salt on the earth. And to be a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden because of the light that it shines. Isn't this incredible news? This is what God has saved us to through Christ. He has called us to take part in his kingdom work, to glorify him in worship, to enjoy him forever, but to bring the nations in so they might do the same. God is recreating the world through his spirit and through his people, and you are called to participate. 
You do not need to earn God's love. You've received it in Christ. You do not do this work so that He might love you. You do this work because He loves you in Christ. You are the remnant chosen by grace. This list of names, this is the story of God's people. You are God's people. This story is our story. And God is faithful. As I look at each one of you here today, I see God is faithful to his people. In Ephesians 2, Paul tells us, For through him, through Christ, we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grow into the temple in the Lord. We are the new temple. We are the new Israel because of Christ. Jesus is our king. If you are in Christ, your name is also written in the book, in a book of the Lamb. And no one may grasp you out of the Father's hand. Nations may raise and fall, but God is setting up his kingdom and he's using you and he's using me. All glory be to Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Reveal to us the work that you have called us to do. May we die to ourselves and carry our cross after our king, the better priest and the better prophet. It is in him we trust. Amen.